Welcome back to Bible time. First Thessalonians chapter one and verse two and three. We studied um, verse one yesterday and we looked at the position of the church in Christ. Um, the church of the Thessalonians, which is in God the Father and in the Lord Jesus Christ, and some different aspects of that, some different privileges of that. It was an exciting study, and we thank God for that and for the truths that we learned, and we're going to move on from there. Um, today in verse 2 and 3, we give thanks to God always for you. Now that, of course, is Paul and Silvanus and Timotheus giving thanks to God for the church of the Thessalonians. We give thanks to God always for you all, making mention of you in our prayers, remembering without ceasing your work of faith and labor of love and patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the sight of God our Father, uh, in the sight of God and our Father. Isn't that an amazing statement there? In the sight of God and our Father. Hmm. That'll make you think a little bit. Let's get into this. Let's get prayed. Um, get prayed up here. Ask God for some help. Father, in Jesus' name, please help us today. Please open the scriptures to our understanding. Open our understanding to the scriptures, Lord. Illuminate us. Lord, we ask that you would teach us wonderful, wonderful things out of your law. Lord, we pray that you would help us to esteem the words of your mouth more than our necessary food. We pray, Lord, that you would give us some um, something to go on today. Give us something to to grow on, Father, something to lean on, something, Lord God, that'll, that'll take us further down the road of life towards that celestial city, towards heaven, Father. We thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name for your word and the fact that it is true, Lord, and we can trust it all together. We thank you, Lord, for your testimonies here in your word. In Jesus' name, amen. So here in Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 and verse 2, um, Paul says here, we give thanks to God always for you all, making mention of you in our prayers. Now, there were some people, some churches who Paul had to say, my little children of whom I travail in birth again until Christ be formed in you. That was to the Galatian church in Galatians 4.19. He said to them, my little children of whom I travail in birth again until Christ be formed in you. So that's an idea, the, the concept. He's using a, a word picture there um, that he's travailing in birth would be the equivalent of a woman in labor about to bring forth her child, which the Bible calls travail. And so he said of the church of Galatia that they were causing him labor pains, that he was in much anguish and much sorrow and much difficulty and much pain, but that he had much hope and that he had much love and that he dearly loved the church at Galatia. And he desperately wanted them to be in a place uh, that they were not. They were in one place. He wanted them to be in another place. And if you're a lady, you can understand that. You'll love that child desperately, but you don't want it to be in the place that's at anymore. You want it to be out of the womb and in your arms, right? And that's what Paul was saying about the church of Galatia. It was not that he did not love them, but his love for them was causing him to go through travail for them in prayer, in anguish, in tears, in afflictions, um, and in the writing of the letter to the church of Galatia to try and turn them back to Christ from the law that they had turned to when they turned away from Christ. And here um, to the church of Thessalonians, you find no such thing. He says, we give 
thanks to God always for you all, making mention of you in our prayers. And the idea of making mention of you in our prayers is a much lighter job than that of travail. Whereas Paul talked about the church of Galatia as a travail, as one that would perhaps that church caused him much fasting. Perhaps he went and abstained from food. Perhaps he abstained from water for a time. Um, It's likely that he did and prayed and wept and had anguish as he as he sought God for what to say and the Holy Spirit of God moved upon Paul to write the letter to the church of Galatia and all of that anguish and all of that travail and all of those prayers that preceded the letter were doubtless continued while the letter was being sent to Galatia and in those days it went by foot. It didn't go by email and it didn't go by Bluetooth transfer. It didn't go by data link. It didn't go by um, fiber optic cable. It went by foot. And so he travailed in writing the letter and he travailed as the letter was sent and he travailed in his spirit until God gave him the okay that everything was all right. And that may not have even come until he got news back from Galatia about how they were received. And you can study all that out. But the church at Galatia had caused him travail in prayer. The church at Thessalonica only got a mention. Now you might say, well, I really want the apostle Paul to pray for me. I want the benefits of the Apostle Paul's prayer for me. But think about this for a second, that the ones that Paul had to pray over are the ones that were in trouble. And the church at Thessalonica was a church on fire. It was a church in operating in the power. It was a church on advance for the kingdom of God. It was a church that was in samples to all them that were in Asia and in Macedonia, as it says there in verse 7. Macedonia and Achaia, I should say, not Asia. And the so this church was a church that was on fire, a church that was an example. It was a church Paul didn't have to spend his prayer time on. You only have so much time in the day, and you only have so much room for a prayer for a prayer burden. And if someone is a prayer warrior, they, they'll understand that. And it takes time and it takes effort to pray intercessory prayer for people. And the church at Thessalonica was not using Paul's intercessory time. It was not using up Paul's prayer burden time. And it was not taking space up on his shoulders as a burden and a yoke that he had to carry with him. Like, that, like the church of Galatia was at the time that Paul had to write that letter. Now, another church that Paul had to deal with was the church at Corinth. He had to deal with about many issues. And of the church at Corinth, Paul said, And I, brethren, could not speak unto you as spiritual, but as unto carnal. That means fleshly. Carnal is a word for flesh. It's, that's all it means is fleshly. So he says spiritual, but as unto carnal, even as babes in Christ, I have fed you with milk and not with meat. For hitherto ye were not able to bear it, neither yet now are ye able. For ye are yet carnal. For whereas there is among you envying and strife and divisions, are ye not carnal and walk as men? And that's in 1 Corinthians 3, chapter 1 through 3. And you'll find in the rest of that chapter that they were saying, I am of Paul, I am of Apollos, I am of Cephas, which is Peter. They said, oh, we're the, we're the group over here that's, we're following Paul. And this group says, well, no, no, we're following Peter, the original apostle. <clears throat> and another one would say, we're following Apollos. 
and they would argue back and forth about who they were following. They were following men. Well, we've, we've been on that topic, haven't we? We've been, we've been touching that topic. By the way, if you think that your church is all great because you have some the first apostle or the fifth apostle or the 11th apostle or the 75th apostle or whatever else you want to come up with, uh, you're carnal at best. And that's what Paul said. Now, moving on from there, these were carnal. They were, he says, I cannot feed you with meat. I've had to feed you with milk. He says, you're like babes in Christ. Now, that didn't mean he didn't love them, did he? Now, that's the second church that Paul mentioned, the second one that that we've talked about here that Paul likened to babies. Galatia, he said, was like a baby yet born. The church at Corinth was like a brand new baby just born. And that brand new baby just born has to be carried around. It has to have its diapers changed. It has to be burped. It has to be taken everywhere that it goes. It has to be fed um, in the mouth. You can't just even hand it food, a brand new baby you have to hold the food for it or deliver it the natural way that God gave a mother to deliver it but you got to hold that baby and deliver that food directly to that baby you have to change the diapers as we said you have to do everything for that baby and it's a burden and a cumbrance and there's no parent alive no matter how much they love their baby but that doesn't want that baby to grow You want that baby every day to get a little bit longer, a little bit stronger, a little bit healthier. You like seeing your baby get a little fatter and put a little weight on and so that they can grow up strong. And you like to see them whenever they learn to hold their head up for themselves and then they learn to hold the bottle for themselves and then they learn to roll over and next thing you know they learn to crawl and then they're starting to walk and then they're starting to run everywhere but they're still toddlers and they're getting into everything and they're getting into trouble here and they're getting into trouble there and then you have to train up that child in the way that they should go and in the nurture and admonition of the Lord and you have to begin to teach them as you find that they will naturally begin to do things that no human being ought to do or should ever want to do. Have you ever noticed that toddlers do some of the most amazingly embarrassing and um, obscene things? If an adult acts like a toddler, they put the adult in prison. Did you know that? Did you know that today? You can laugh about that. A toddler gets a pass because he's corralled by his parents and God thankfully gave them a little body. Can you imagine a 240 pound, six foot eight linebacker sized toddler at three years old crashing through your house playing truck? Well, that toddler would destroy everything in his path if he was that big. So thank God he gave toddlers little bitty bodies and he gave toddlers parents in his in his system the way that he designed it so that parents can train their toddlers. Thou shalt not steal. Thou shalt not kill thy brother for taking thy cookie. Thou shalt not bear false witness and lie about that thing that I just watched you do. And you're standing there bold faced looking me in the eye and telling me you didn't do it and that parent then must train that toddler but that toddler just a little child there until they're trained they're still a burden and then there comes a day whenever they can start to sweep the floor and they can start to help with the dishes and they can start to help with the laundry and they can pick up their own toys and then one day comes that they're able if there is if it's a young man maybe he can um, change a motor in a truck someday and you can look out and say I thank God upon every remembrance of you. 
It's no longer a burden. It doesn't mean that you love that young man more than you loved that toddler. Nothing could be further from the case. Am I speaking the truth? You don't love the young man any more than you loved the toddler. And you don't love the toddler any more than you loved that infant. In fact, a lot of times toddlers may be loved less than the infants. Just because of the cumbrance. When they go through that time, whenever they're starting to learn how to do everything and getting into everything, it can be quite a trial. But you love that child and you've always loved that child. But there comes a time when a child should grow up and there comes a a time whenever a child should leave the home and when a child should no longer have to be under the direct care and tutoring of the parents. And that child should be able to walk on its own two feet and talk with its own mouth and make some decisions for itself that are good decisions that don't cause a total destruction to everything that that child is trying to do. And at that point, we say that they're grown and they're an adult. Well, here, the church of the Thessalonians is in such a state. The apostle Paul, instead of saying to them, you are yet carnal, he says to them, we give thanks to God always for you all, making mention of you in our prayers. We don't have to pray hard for you anymore. We don't have to weep on our faces before God for you. Why? Because we know some things about you. And these things that we know about you are what Paul is about to mention here today. He says, remembering without ceasing, first of all, your work of faith. Secondly, your labor of love. Thirdly, your patience of hope. And all of that in our Lord Jesus Christ, in the sight of God and our Father. Now, these things that Paul mentions here are evidences that Paul could see of the work of Jesus Christ and of the position of the church of the Thessalonians in Jesus Christ. Now, again, there are individuals, and as individuals, we can make application to this in our lives. I need to grow up and be a man of God, not just a a wimpy baby Christian that doesn't know anything about the Bible. I need to grow up. You need to grow up. all need to grow up. But there is also an application to a assembly, an assembly of believers who have trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ alone by grace through faith. They've been saved and they're gathering in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and they need the power of the Lord Jesus Christ. The church at Galatia lacked the power. They had the name, but not the power. The church at Corinth had the name, but not the power because they were carnal and there must be a point where the power is transferred and a church will go through the same stages as a believer will go through in his walk. This is why also it is very rare for a church body to to be able to pass on and succeed um, its spiritual privileges to the next generation because every generation has to go through this process of growth. Every generation has to grow up into the stature of the fullness of Christ themselves. And each generation has to make the decisions to go forward with God and to study to show themselves approved and to respond to the promptings of the Holy Ghost. And this is why so many good churches and by and large 
large, all good churches will last maybe one generation, maybe two generations before there's nothing left but a mausoleum to the old generation that once knew God and once walked in his power. And those who know the story of that generation in that church building will come and say with shock and with awe and with often horror, my, what has changed and how has this come about that a church that once had the fire of God and the power of God is now full of the world and carnality. Well, the reason is that the church is not the building and the church is not the name of the pastor and the church is not the Bible school that the pastor was sent out of, but the church is the assembly of the believers who are born again by the power of God and are gathering in the name and hopefully the power of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that assembly, when the older generation dies off and no longer can take the helm and the leadership in that church, that younger generation's position in Christ will be seen and the evidence of who they are and what they are will be seen. And instead of looking at it as a church or an organization dying, instead recognize that what you're seeing is churches and organizations not standing up and not getting the power that God has given them and promised them to walk in the fullness of the spirit and the fullness of the Holy Ghost. Do you understand that today? We look at this flip backwards. We look at an organization and say, wow, it's gone downhill. No, it never went downhill. If it was of God, then it was of God because it went uphill. And the next generation that came along and inherited the desks and the chairs and the deed for the land and the building and the grounds and the mission statement, and if it's incorporated, the incorporation status, and they inherited the positions, the chairman, the deaconing, the board, whatever else positions that you have in that church or that organization, the next generation never stood up. The next generation never went up up. It isn't that the organization went downhill. It is that the church was operating in power and went on to glory and left behind them a generation that knew not God and had not the power of the preceding generation. They never went up and laid hold on the promises of God and lived in the practical daily power of their position in Christ. And that's why the organization or the church changed and degraded and became a, a shadow of what it once was because you're looking at the object instead of the people the people you say what a shame that man was such a man of God and his son took over his pastor and he's not a fraction that that man was that's normal that's life that man has the opportunity to step up by the power of God to be something. And those people have the opportunity. But just because daddy had the power doesn't mean that you will have the power. You've got to go get it yourself from God. So here we have the work of faith that Paul mentions here in Second Thessalonians um, 1 and verse 3. Remembering without ceasing your work of faith and labor of love. Now this church is a successful church. And how many of us want our church to be successful? How many of us want to be successful as Christians? I hope that we all do. So we'll be looking for the key to the success of this church as we study out these things that Paul is remembering without ceasing. These things that stand out to the Apostle Paul above everything else about this church. What do you think of 
Whenever you think of your church, whenever you think of a local church that you're aware of, what do you think of? Do you think of the clothing that is worn? Do you think of the smell of incense? Do you think of a group of people dressed in shirts and ties? Or maybe they're all in brogans and overalls. Maybe you think of wood panel walls. Or maybe you think of gilded ceilings. You're thinking about buildings. And that's what we do naturally. But I want to show you today with the help of the Lord through the word of God that what excuse me what set the church of Thessalonica apart was not their ceilings it wasn't their floors it wasn't their suits or their overalls it wasn't their gold or lack of gold it wasn't their richness or their poorness what it was was a spiritual manifestation of their position in Christ it was the evidence of who they were working out of them and we're going to study that here real quickly the first is the work of faith and we'll go to James chapter 2 to to look at that in more detail. So he says here, remembering without ceasing your work of faith. Looking for James, James chapter 2, excuse me, verse 14. <clears throat> what doth it profit, my brethren? What doth it profit, my brethren? Though a man say he hath faith and have not works, can faith save him? If a brother or sister be naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you say unto them, Depart in peace, be ye warmed and filled. Notwithstanding, ye give them not those things which are needful to the body. What did that profit? Even so, faith, if it hath not works, is dead, being alone. That's a strong statement. Dead. Dead faith, if it hath not works. Yea, a man may say, Thou hast faith, and I have works. Show me thy faith without thy works, and I will show thee my faith by my works. Thou believest that there is one God, thou doest well. How many people do I talk to about the Lord Jesus? And they say, I believe in God. And I can say to them with James, Thou believest there is one God, thou doest well. The devils also believe and tremble. The devils believe God, and they're not going to heaven. The devils believe God and they have no redemption. The devils believe God and they find no salvation. But yet in spite of the fact that they have nothing to look forward to from God but wrath and judgment and fiery indignation, there are still works that accompany the devil's belief in God. And what are those works? They tremble. The Bible says in the Psalms, the transgression of the wicked saith within my heart, there is no fear of God before their eyes. There is no fear of God before their eyes. When you meet somebody that sins with impunity, they sin without repentance, they sin without any shame, you are meeting someone who the Bible calls wicked and who the Bible says has no fear of God before their eyes. The fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. It's the beginning of knowledge. The Bible says both things about the fear of the Lord. But the devils, they have the fear of God because they believe in God and the question then today is, do you, if your church, as you gather, if you gather together and you come on Sunday and you're ready to take of the communion of the body and blood of Christ, and there comes into your midst, your sons and your daughters, your uncles, your aunts, your nephews, your nieces, your friends, the people that you know, and all throughout that church are people living in open immorality who are, um, 
open in their sin, yet they name the name of Christ. You're transgressing the word of God. And there's no fear. There's no question. And Paul, Paul addressed that to the church at Corinth in 1 Corinthians 5. He says, you're proud of it. And today in America, we have many churches who gather and they put up the rainbow flag on the side of their building and they tell people, come as you are. And they serve them communion and they make these people officers in the church who are committing acts of abomination before God that God calls reprobate, people that God calls completely upside down backwards reprobate sinful abominations on committing acts that prove that they are on their way to a devil's hell and they're doing it while they name the name of Christ. And you bring them into your church and and include them in all the work and the offices of the church not just to bring them the gospel, but to include them in every part of the church, including communion and everything else that's done. And then the Bible says there is no fear of God before your eyes. If that is the case and there's no fear of God, then there's no evidence that your faith is real. He says, but wilt thou know, O vain man, that faith without works is dead. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he had offered Isaac his son upon the altar? Seest thou, we're in verse 22, James chapter 2. Seest thou how faith wrought with his works and by works was faith made perfect. And the scripture was fulfilled which saith Abraham believed God and it was imputed unto him for righteousness and he was called the friend of God. Ye see then how that by works a man is justified and not by faith only. Likewise also was not Rahab the harlot justified by works when she had received the messengers and had sent them out another way. For as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. Now we know from Ephesians that we're saved by grace through faith. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. And Romans says, if it be of works, then it is no more faith. And if it is of faith, it is no more works. So how can this be true in the book of James? Now, this problem actually was a problem that Martin Luther struggled with. And I thank God for Martin Luther and his influence on the church throughout the ages. There were some things that Martin Luther brought with him from his um, teaching. He was indoctrinated um, in the Catholic seminaries, and he came out of there with an intense hatred for the Jews, and he brought that with him. Unfortunately, he misunderstood those scriptures about the Jews, and his Martin Luther's teaching subsequently was used by Hitler to justify his attack on the Jews during the um, time of the Second World War in the 1940s. And what a grief that is which again manifestly points to us, shows us that we should not be followers of men, but rather of Christ. And so as, as much as Martin Luther did that was good, that was a grievous point, something that was very grievous, and Martin Luther could not come to grips with the book of James. At one point in his life, he tore the book of James from his Bible, saying surely it had been added by the Catholics. Well, unfortunately, he was wrong about that. But later in his life, he repented and God brought him around on that. And um, he um, repented of that act of having torn the book of James out of his Bible. But it was for this very reason that he struggled with it. Now, Martin Luther lived in a day whenever everybody said that you were saved by works, not by faith. We live in a day where people say that you're saved by faith apart from works. And there, the answer to that day is the book of James that says, 
a man may say, thou hast faith and I have works. Show me thy faith without thy works and I will show thee my faith by my works. He says, but wilt thou know, O vain man, that faith without works is dead. And in verse 22, seest thou how faith wrought with his works. Faith wrought with his works. Now in our text in 1 Thessalonians, we have here the work of faith that Paul is bringing to remembrance as he prays and thanks God for the church at Thessalonica. There's a work of faith. That is a work wrought with faith. A work that is done because of belief. Now to understand this, we need, uh, and we're not going to get too deep into it right now. Maybe when we study James, we'll really dive into it. Um, by God's grace. But to understand this, we must first remember that faith means trusting the veracity of the one speaking. Trusting the honesty, the truthfulness, the authenticity of of that one that spoke, that what he says is true. Whenever a man comes up and tells me that I have a problem with my vehicle and that I've got a cylinder that's bad and that the lifter collapsed and that it's going to take a total top end rebuild to fix the motor or the engine on my vehicle, uh, I have a choice to make. I can either trust the veracity of what he is saying and hire him to do the work or whatever else has to happen, or I can go to another person and another source to get another opinion. And that whenever you get another opinion, you are by very nature saying, I do not implicitly trust this first source. I need another witness. And that's perfectly appropriate in auto mechanics. And it's perfectly appropriate in medical field. If your doctor says you've got cancer and there's nothing we can do, there's no reason that you should feel compelled to take him at his word for it and not get a second opinion. If you feel that you need a second opinion, go get a second opinion. But when it comes to God's word, there is no second opinion. The second opinion that you can find in God's word is in God's word. James has to balance Thessalonians and Thessalonians has to balance Romans and Romans has to balance Genesis and Genesis has to balance Revelation and all the books of the Bible work together and operate in conjunction with one another. So the word of God then, if you have faith in the word of God, then you take it as the sole authority and your faith then must be placed in the word of God or it's not faith in God. If your faith is in a catechism, then you've got to go back and figure out what council put together that catechism because that is your God. That is who your faith is in. You might be upset with me for saying that. You say, that's not my God. I believe in God in the Bible. You only believe in God in the Bible because the catechism tells you to. You tr- your trust is in the catechism. Your trust isn't in God. Your faith is in the catechism, not in God. You say that you believe in God, but you don't keep his commandments. The Bible says you're a liar, and that's the, and the reason is that if you believed him, your faith would rot with your works. I know that's the wrong tense, but we'll use it anyway. Your faith would work if you had faith. We're saved by grace through faith, not works, but faith that saves works. And I remember Brother Keith Daniel saying that many times, faith that saves works. We're saved by faith, not works, but faith that saves works. If you truly believe, you will move. If your house is, um, if you believe that your house is on fire, you will get off the couch and get out the door and you will call the ambulance and you'll get your loved ones out and you'll call the fire department 
apartment. You'll get everything that matters to you out of the house as fast as you can and get clear if you believe it's on fire. But you can sit on the couch all day long saying, I believe the house is on fire till you're blue in the face. And as long as you sit on the couch, nobody's going to believe you that you believe anything. And that's what this is dealing with. This is dealing with evidence. You say, well, my faith in God is in my heart. I believe in God in my heart and it's a personal thing and I don't really like to talk about it much. Well, then you are pretty much a liar because faith without works is dead. And the Bible says that if you deny me before men, I will deny you before my father. And when you say my faith is a personal thing, I don't really talk about it much. You deny Jesus Christ to man when the Bible says be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you the hope that lieth within you. The word of God has commanded you to be ready to talk about your faith. And you say, my faith is a personal matter. Then your faith is a faith in something other than God's word and therefore something other than God. And you may not even have faith at all. And the evidence is that you do not. If that be the case, this church at Thessalonica had work of faith. The remembrance of this clear evidence of legitimate faith caused Paul, Silvanus, and Timotheus great joy, as indeed it should. Such evidence proclaims to the world the reality of not only our individual, but when seen in a body of the faith of the church. It is salt of the earth and it is a light of the world. Matthew 5 14 says, as ye are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hid. Neither do men light a candle and put it under a bushel, but on a candlestick, and it giveth light unto all that are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. The body of the, the weight here of argument is upon the professor to prove that he is a Christian, not on the Christian or on the world to have to believe the man that he is saved did you did you follow that today the bible has concluded all under sin the bible says all have sinned and come short of the glory of god the bible says all we like sheep have gone astray there is none that doeth good no not one the body of the weight for producing evidence lies on the one who would claim to be saved not on the rest of the world and not on the rest of the church in order to try and just have to take the man at his word nowhere in the bible will you find a church or an individual given the responsibility of accepting a man's profession at first glance and upon the mention of his lips in fact you'll find the exact opposite and yet our church today will call anyone that questions their faith a judge and they'll say judge not lest ye be judged when the reality is that the burden and the weight to produce evidence lies on your back sir you have the burden to produce evidence to your salvation. And if the evidence is not readily available, and if someone asks of you the hope that lieth within you, you are required by God to produce the evidence. And if you do not produce the evidence, then the church, the Christian, is required by God to treat you as a lost man and warn you to flee from the wrath to come. No matter how much churchianity you've got, no matter how many years you've been a deacon, 
deacon in the church, no matter how you were confirmed or the catechism that you recited or the baptism that you took or the sacraments you partook of or anything else that is given to you to consider the body and the weight of the proof for the evidence lies on your shoulders. You must produce the evidence. Show me thy faith, James says. Show me thy faith without thy works. And I will show thee my faith by my works. This personal faith thing that I don't like to talk about doesn't exist in the Bible. That is not biblical faith. And it is not faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And anyone who says to me, my faith is a personal matter and I don't really want to talk about it. This isn't really something that I want to talk about. Is giving clear biblical evidence to me that they are either absolutely backslidden and facing the judgment and chastening hand of Almighty God for their backslidden state because God will not allow them to continue to live that way as a Christian or they are lost and undone and on their way to hell and now for me to say oh they're a backslidden Christian would require an absolute judgment call on my part and I would have to say this person that will not talk to me about their faith I feel like in my heart must really be saved and therefore I will treat them as a saved person and then I would be the judge my responsibility and the responsibility of the church of Jesus Christ that is in Jesus Christ when it comes to people who refuse to or cannot produce evidence of their sonship, of their adoption, of their position in Christ is to treat them as the lost and warn them of the wrath of God and the impending fires of hell that await them for their impudence to go on living apart from repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. This is reality. Now, Jesus said there that you are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hid. He says, let your light so shine before men. That is a command of Christ. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. You are commanded by God Almighty to be transparent about your position in Christ and to live it in such a way that everyone can see. This is God's will. This is God's purpose. It is an absolute enigma of religion that men with no evidence of faith expect to be received as if they have faith. A man may say he owns land, but it means nothing to the court. It means nothing to the neighbors. It means nothing to the town that he lives in until he can produce the deed to the property and prove that it is his. And if he cannot do that, he will be sent packing and not be allowed to inhabit or build or change the land a man that claims to be a pianist and he says I can play Chopin I can play Bach I can play Beethoven and he tells everyone his great prowess on the piano but then he sits down and cannot produce anything that can be even called musical upon the piano would be scorned and mocked and laughed off the stage in every arena of life In every arena of life, men are required and expected to produce the evidence of what they say before they will be trusted. You expect that when you sign a contract. You expect that when you take your car to the auto mechanic. You expect that someone will produce the evidence that they are what they say that they are. And you would not want an auto mechanic to work on your car who could not produce the evidence. And here God tells us that the church of that 
Thessalonica had evidence of legitimate faith. And their evidence was, first of all, the work of faith. It was, secondly, the labor of love. And let's look at that next real quick here. Number two, the labor of love. The labor of love. Beyond the work of faith is the labor of love. Look back at Thessalonians and right across, uh, maybe right across the page or back a page, Colossians 4 and verse 12, Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ saluteth you, always laboring fervently for you in prayers. And the first labor that we'll look at here is the fervent labor of prayer. Here is a church that Paul was not laboring over in prayer, but this was rather a church that was laboring in prayer. This is a labor of love. And this labor of love allowed Paul to rejoice. It gave him a great freedom because he didn't have to spend countless hours weeping and fasting and praying for this church to be for Christ to be fully formed in this church because he knew that they were do you hear me today they were taking up their own slack they were feeding themselves from the word of God which is another labor here there was uh, there were actually many labors in 2nd Thessalonians 3 8 Paul mentions another labor and this church was part of it when we get to 2nd Thessalonians we'll see some of that that there were people that had come or had either come or backslidden who were no longer laboring with their hands but in 2nd and 1st Thessalonians 3 and excuse me verse 8 that's 2nd Thessalonians 3 8 I'm sorry and that is the one that that we will see let's just look at it neither did we eat any man's bread for naught but wrought with labor and travail night and day that we might not be chargeable to any of you so the, they labored um, here with their hands to provide food for their own mouths so that they were not a physical burden to the other people they would labor in business they would labor in the word and in doctrine first um, thessalonians 5 and verse 12 And we beseech you, brethren, to know them which labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you. And we've studied some of this labor out before this. There's the labor of prayer. There's a labor in word and in doctrine. There's a labor with the hands. There's a labor in business. There are many labors that can be labored. But these labors are not only labor, but labor of love. This is not compulsory labor. This is not labor for vainglory. This is not labor for recognition or the praise of men. 1 Corinthians 13, 3, Paul says, And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned and have not charity, it profiteth nothing. Now, charity is the practical Christ-like outworking of the love of God in a Christian. This charity should not be understood to be donating to an um, altruistic campaign or, get, or donating to some kind of charitable organization. That is not how the Bible uses the word charity. Now, the word charity in the Bible is the equivalent a lot of people would get into on the Greek. They talk about the three different types of love. You don't need the Greek. And by the way, they've twisted that thing up even in the concordance, and you can't get that thing straight if you try, if you're going 
going back to the Greek unless you can go back past the concordance and past the Nestle text and all the corruption that came in in the 1890s. I think in the 1860s through 90s. I thank God for my King James authorized version Bible that says what God said and I can trust it every time. Now here this charity is the ultimate outworking of selfless Christ-like love. It's the outworking of selfless Christ-like love. And this labor that this church labored in was an evidence because of the love that they did it with, the charity that they did it with, it was evidence of their position in Christ because such labor can only come from Christ. They had works of faith. They had work of faith. They had labor of love and they had patience of hope. Now, before we go to patience of hope, Let's contrast labor of love today. There is a, there's a, I've mentioned them before because they stand out in my area. There is a huge hospital network that has several hospitals in my area for which I'm grateful. Uh, and I have received some physical blessing from them as they've helped me with different things that I've needed. And they're one of the best hospital networks in our area. And they were started by a group of women called Sisters of Mercy. They called their first hospital there in the Springfield area, St. John's. It's now Mercy Hospital. And um, you can go on to the, there's Mercy in uh, many, many cities across the nation. And there were several of these ladies who'd had a labor and they labored their whole life for the help of the sick. But as to whether or not it was a labor of love, well, obviously God is the judge of that and he will judge it. And I don't want to sit as judge over them in that area. But whenever people labor, what I do want to say as an illustration here, when people labor and the fruit of their labor is a giant organization with their name and their plaques and their statues everywhere, it bears evidence that the labor was perhaps not so much of love. Now, I don't know them personally, and I don't want to judge their hearts, and I thank God for the blessing that has come to many communities through their labor. But did their labor prove that they were of the church in Christ? Many people can labor in humanistic love, and many people do. Philanthropists give millions and millions and millions and billions of dollars to charitable causes and organizations. And often they do it out of a sense of human decency and a desire to see fellow man improved. And they may not even want recognized and might even do it um, anonymously. Um, those that do it to get it, make a big show and sound a trumpet before them and put their names up in front of everybody as some kind of special people. Jesus said they have their reward. But even then, these who do it out of a desire to better man, but they're not doing it as an outflow of the love of God in their hearts, they also have no reward. Jesus said, though I give all my goods to feed the poor and have not charity, it profiteth me nothing. I'm not saying today that these people had no love. I'm not saying that they did not do good things. But what I am saying is that if they did not do it out of a flow of the love of Jesus 
Christ in their hearts and through their hearts, then it will not profit them in heaven. And you can die and go to hell and be a sister of mercy. Being a sister of mercy doesn't give you a free pass to heaven. There's only one way to the Father, and that's through Jesus Christ our Lord. There have been many good people who've died and gone to hell. Good in God in man's estimation, but not in God's. And that will, and we'll see that as we wrap up this verse where it says that this all of this, the work of faith, labor of love, and patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the sight of God and our Father. If it doesn't if it doesn't um count as labor of love in the sight of God, it doesn't matter what I think it is or what you think it is or what anybody else thinks it is. It's got to be in the sight of God. And if it is in the sight of God, it will be evidenced in the sight of man as well. And it says here, in patience of hope. Let's move on as we're running out of time. So the patience of hope. And find my place. Here we go. Patience of hope. Go to 2 Peter. 2 Peter chapter 1. So 2 Peter 1, 6 through 11. Um, and he says here, and let's start in verse five. And beside this, giving all diligence, to add to your faith, virtue and to virtue, knowledge and to knowledge, temperance and to temperance, patience and to patience, godliness and to godliness, brotherly kindness and to brotherly kindness, charity. For if these things be in you and abound, they make you that ye shall neither be barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But he that lacketh these things is blind and cannot see afar off and hath forgotten that he was purged from his old sins. Wherefore, the rather, brethren, give diligence to make your calling and election sure. For if ye do these things, ye shall never fail, never fall. For so an entrance shall be ministered unto you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. So this patience is what is to be added to our faith. And we see in the letter to the Thessalonians that they had added to their faith patience. They had a patience of hope. But this patience here is the character to peacefully, without bad temper or angst, rest in God's perfect timing, busying oneself with the tasks at hand while watching carefully for instructions to go forward. Patience is the character to suffer for Christ without retaliation or conniving a way of escape. Patience is tied to long-suffering. Now this patience is a patience of hope. And there in 1 Thessalonians, he says it, and patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ and in the sight of God and our Father. Go to Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12 and verse 12 says, Rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation, continue, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> continuing instant in prayer. So this rejoicing in hope ties in directly with the patience in tribulation. And you see that the patience there is linked to tribulation. And throughout the rest of the Bible, especially throughout the New Testament, you will see that this concept of suffering for Christ is directly linked to patience. If you are a believer and you try to go forward for God, you're not going to make it if you don't get some patience. If you don't add to your faith patience. Patience deals with long suffering. Patience is evidence of a hope that is in you that is greater than material or temporal gain. Patience comes from recognizing the eternal value of the gospel. 
Patience comes from recognizing the eternal value of what's happening and of what God is having you do. Patience comes from return uh, from recognizing the eternal value of the souls who are hurting you, of the souls who will not listen, of the souls who persecute you, of the souls who say evil against you falsely, and in recognizing their the eternal value of those souls gives you the patience to wait and to have long suffering and to love them and to turn the other cheek and to persevere and not give up continuing instant in prayer patience is what you got to have whenever you had work of faith and then your work of faith blossomed into a labor of love but the labor of love was not received and when it was not received and everything went south and nobody seemed to want anything to do with you and it looked like all your labor of love was in vain and your work of faith had been cast aside the patience of hope carries you through and preserves you through those times and helps you maintain continued work work of love or work of faith and labor of love. Romans 12, 12 there, rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation, continuing instant in prayer. Go to Romans 5. Will you go there? We'll read Colossians 1, 11, strengthened with all might according to his glorious power unto all patience and long suffering with joyfulness. Now, many people today talk about the power of God and they say, we need the power of God, but very few people need the power of God to patiently suffer long. Most people need the power of God to prove that they're an effective minister and get more financial support. Most people need the power of God so that they can show everybody that they're more holy than they are. Most people need the power of God so that they can have some kind of manifestations of the spirit that'll wow everybody and get them in the club that they want to be in because the that special club only recognizes certain manifestations of the spirit and until they can do it in such a way that'll convince those people they're out of the club so they need the power of God to get in the club they need to be spoken well of they need to be recognized they need opportunity they need pulpit time they need something they need proof to man that there's something special than other people so they need power but here the Bible says strengthened with all might according to his glorious power unto all patience and long suffering with joyfulness think of Stephen full of faith and power and he got drugged before that council and they were angry with him and gnashed upon him with their teeth and drew him outside the city and stoned Stephen, the Bible says, calling upon God who said, Father, lay not these sins to their charge or something to that close effect. Go read it in Acts chapter 7. And he said when he had said these things, he fell asleep. Most of us don't want power to die for Christ. Most of us don't want power to have our homes burned over our heads for Christ. But nevertheless, that's the power uh, that God is giving us to, through patience. And that's what God desires us to have is the power to die if need be for Christ, to suffer joyfully for Christ. Now, here in Romans 5, he says, Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom also we have access by faith into this grace wherein we stand and rejoice in the hope, uh, in hope of the glory of God. Where does the rejoicing come? We stand here in the, um, because we have peace with God, we have access through Jesus Christ into this grace, which is the power and the desire to do what God says. This grace wherein we stand, 
again, and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. So the hope is where the rejoicing comes from, and the hope is the key to the patience. Look at verse 3. And not only so, but we glory in tribulations also, knowing that tribulation worketh patience. Did you hear what he just said? We glory in tribulation also. Now, we have already observed that the church in Thessalonica was a church born in trouble. Three Sabbath days, Paul reasoned with the Jews from the scripture. And when they attacked and and drove Paul from the city, he went to the next city. And they chased him even into strange cities. They went to neighboring cities trying to make trouble for Paul. How much trouble do you think they were making for the believers back home in Thessalonica? If they would go on special mission trips to disrupt the work of Paul preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ in other regions, how much more trouble were they making for the plain old folks back home who had believed on the Lord Jesus Christ through the preaching of Paul? And here was the church of Thessalonica, and Paul said of them, we rejoice, remembering without ceasing your work of faith. We give thanks to God always for you all, making mention of you in our prayers, remembering without ceasing your work of faith and labor of love and patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the sight of God and our Father. There in Romans 5, 3, and not only so, but we glory in tribulations, also knowing that tribulation worketh patience and patience experience and experience hope. Do you see the cycle here? And hope maketh not ashamed because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost, which is given unto us. Boy, we could get stuck here for a while, but we're already out of time so we need to keep moving but this cycle here that it's showing us that the tribulations god brings work patience and the patience works experience and the experience adds to our hope and that hope by the way is what we're to rejoice in back in verse two that allows us to glory in tribulations so now that we have more hope and we're faced with more tribulations those tribulations work more patience and more experience and more hope and the hope of god is because the love of god is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost which is given unto us and that gives us the power to labor in love and the power of the labor of love is a manifestation of the work of faith do you see how it all ties together now all of these things that he mentions here are products of the success of the church at Thessalonica you might say, well, that sounds like the key to success to me. That sounds to me like um, if we just had some works of faith and labor of love and patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ and the sight of God and our Father, that we'd have a successful church. Well, that'd be true, but you can't just make all that stuff happen. There's a key to success here that we have not uncovered yet. The key to the success. And these things that we've looked at are the product of the success these are all wonderful evidences and marvelous products of the of the success of the Thessalonians that is due to the reality of their position in Christ that we studied yesterday now you aren't impressed with that answer maybe you wanted more than a position in Christ. You wanted three steps to power. You wanted five steps to success. You wanted a, you wanted a purpose-driven life and a way to grow your church to 17,000 in three years. I'm sorry, there's not really anything else I can offer you. This is the key to their success. The key to their success was that they lived in the practical reality of their position in Christ. 
That's the key. And we'll see some of the effects of that key as we continue studying. We'll see that the power of God comes to those who are living in the practical reality of their position in Christ. We'll see that faith in God's word and understanding of God's word comes to those who live in a practical reality of their position in Christ. And we talked about what that means yesterday. So if you're not sure about what that means, go look up that other message and read the Bible and study out our position in Christ. Study Ephesians chapter 2, which we didn't even get into yesterday, of our position in Christ. The Bible says in Colossians 2.10, And ye are complete in him which is the head of all principality and power. So now we understand the key to the success of the church of the Thessalonians, the living in the practical reality of their position in Christ. And what we lack is the ability to use that key in our own lives and Yes, you can go back and look at that position and understand it better, but how do I practically grab that key and put it in the lock and turn it to open the door to godly biblical success in my life and in my church? How do I do that? And the answer will be found in the book of Thessalonians. That's what Paul's writing this about. And that's what we're going to be studying to find how to use that key. This whole book rests on the concept of the position of the church of the Thessalonians in Christ. And every blessing and exhortation that Paul gives throughout this book is directly related to that position in Christ. That's the key, and that's what we're going to study next time. I hope you'll be able to be with us. I thank you all that are here today, and I pray that God will bless you and that we will make use of this vital truth in our own lives to have success for God in this life. Thank you, Lord, for your word. In Jesus' name, amen.